The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is Socially Distanced. I'm Paxton Wright. With me, as always, except for one time where he wasn't, my co host, Justin Kiever. How you doing, Justin? I'll have you know, I was gone two times at least. <laughs> That's, you know, yeah, good, good job saving face there. You're right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I'm lazier than you let on. How dare you? <laughs> I was trying to throw you a bone, Justin. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this is, this is the, I mean, you know, the rundown at this point, unless you're listening for the first time, but that's on you. We talk about movies and video games and TV and whatnot. And, uh, you know, just, just general n- dork stuff. Cause we're dorks. Um, so Justin, uh, let's get into the news. Does that sound good to you? News sounds good to me. All right. News always sounds good, especially these days. I, I never, <laughs> I never stop looking at the news and I'm like, yeah, things are going great. Um, which is uh, an awesome place to be in. Uh, yep. <laughs> but, uh, uh, I guess, yeah. um, one one pretty pressing story that that broke today that's pretty exciting um, in the world of dork stuff is the fact that uh, and I, I should have looked up pronunciation before coming into this so apologies for if I completely butcher this name which I very likely might uh, I mean no offense by it um, but Kichiro Toyama um, who is a former director one of the sort of considered uh, key voices in the development of uh, Silent Hill as well as the um, Siren games, which some people kind of consider like a sort of spiritual successor and uh, Gravity Rush, which is a franchise that I hear a lot about, but I'm uh, completely unfamiliar with. However, I know quite a bit about the former. Um, He has left Sony to form an independent studio. Uh, The Bokeh, again, might have mispronounced that, uh, B-O-K-E-H game studio with... And again, I'm just, I'm going to mispronounce a lot of names, but um, Kazunobu uh, Sato, who produced uh, The Last Guardian, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, was involved with, um, what's it, uh, uh, Shadow of the Colossus and Aiko, but I could be wrong about that, as well as uh, Junya Okura, um, who uh, uh, was the lead designer on Gravity Rush. Um and so yeah this is this is pretty exciting especially in the world of AAA video games uh or or at least higher budget video games i don't know if they'll necessarily qualify as AAA um from actually unique talented creative voices not to suggest that sony and ea and activision don't have genuine talent on their teams they obviously do but um at least uh uh games not quite designed by committee and not quite um, meant to move copies more than anything else. Yeah, I think the I think the exact thing that's interesting about this story is the fact that like 
it's it's the very fact that like you know triple a might no longer apply to the games that these people are making right like it is the fact that yeah like they are now unbound from the the sony engine and that is cool you know um i, I mean so i know very little about gravity rush uh in terms of like i haven't played it i've seen a lot of videos of gravity rush 2 that uh, make me suggest that I that, that would suggest that I would like it a lot. Like I know, like like Gravity Rush Two was kind of like where that uh, that series like really uh, hit its stride. Um, and yeah, no, like this is like it's cool. I'm looking forward to seeing what they're doing. I haven't watched the their video, but I have seen the uh, screenshots of some of the concept art for the thing they are working on, which looks uh, like a more HR Geigery uh, Resident Evil Four is kind of like the way I would describe like some of these monster designs. You know, that's uh, actually a like perfectly apt description. Um, now that I'm looking at this here, uh, yeah. HR Geiger RE4 is exactly what we're looking at here. Like this one, obviously, like you see kind of a head crab design in one of them, uh, but it's also got sort of the same elements as the, uh, I guess you'd call it the RE4 head crab, the sort of like spidery thing that when you blow up some dude's heads, their like head becomes the like weird sort of uh, almost like bat-like spider thing. Um, uh-huh. It's gnarly, man. It's gnarly. Yeah, I've been having a lot of nightmares about spiders lately, so this isn't helping. How dare you? Oh, oh. Well, uh, I should tell you that um, I just saw a a very gargantuan spider outside uh, my apartment's laundry facilities a minute ago, and it was uh, it was quite it was quite it was quite terrifying. Even as someone who doesn't really have much of a fear of spiders, uh, it was it was an unpleasant sighting. So take that to bed with you. Yeah. Uh, so un- unrelated. Uh, or related to spiders, I was just like, I'm now just, you describing that reminds me of, I think, like, one of the weird, like, the most horrible moments of arachnophobia I've ever had with, like, the image of a spider, was just at one point to be mean, my roommate uh, in a, in my first year of college, who is a wonderful person, I'm great, you know, still great friends with him. So he um, had it coming is what you're saying. <laughs> no, 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 he, uh, apparently I had it coming. He just, like, sent me, like, you know, an image file, like, through, like, Facebook Messenger that was just, like, this, like, picture there was a picture of a gargantuan spider like attacking a camera and i just remember Oof. like like it was this moment of like intense fear where i didn't respond i didn't scream even though i felt like it was just like i shut down and i just kind of like closed my laptop just like very slowly and it was like it was kind of like, like i feel like a very like kind of comic moment and i just did that and i was like Ugh. Yeah, and then I sort of like, yeah, it was like partly frozen for the rest of the day. You know, that's a very convenient, like fortunately it wasn't a real spider. I don't know why I'm telling the story, but like. <laughs> it, um, it'll make sense. The movie uh, Arachnophobia scared the heck out of me, man. And like, uh, again, I don't really have a spider fear, but that that scene when it's the close up on the, the drain in the bathtub and just the like horde of little spiders come crawling out of it. It's, uh, it's awful. Uh, it's awful, man. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> so this is to say that the, uh, the work of the studio seems, um, you know, I look at this and go, cool. And also, I bet I'm, I bet I'm gonna have trouble playing this. Yeah. Uh, and and you know, that's a good that's a good spot for a horror game to be in, frankly. Um, uh, I'm okay with that. And like it's yeah, it's encouraging because we especially see it with uh, we've seen it with a lot of high profile uh, Japanese developers lately, and I think probably the most uh, 
famous or infamous, I guess, depending on who you ask, but high profile um, in recent years was Konami's uh, or um, Kojima's exit from Konami. Uh, the somewhat, uh, uh, what is it? Somewhat um, consensual, I guess, is sort of a strange choice of words, but uh, his exit somewhat by his own accord and somewhat not um, to form uh, Kojima Productions in which case we got the uh, absolutely, utterly insane um, Death Stranding, which was a very weird indie game on a triple A budget and scale. Um, yeah, like that. I mean, I don't think that's going to happen with this studio because like to be, you know, to be frank, like there are names that are attached to Silent Hill that like have more, you know, kind of cultural capital than uh, Toyama. Uh, nonetheless, you know, it's not to say that like these people aren't, you know, incredibly talented. It's just that like there is a kind of like, you know, there, there's a level of like in the know you need to be with these names that you don't need to be for Kojima because I mean, Kojima's whole kind of thing is like this persona that he's been able to like build around himself and like the way that he like is able to kind of like intervene into like other kind of cultural spheres outside of games that basically gave him, I think really gave him the cultural capital to one, have a studio that is named after him and also to produce something that is like that weird on that big a scale. Like, I don't think we're going to see that out of a bokeh game studio. But that said, I think that's fine. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, um, agreed. Oh, and ahead, uh, oh, you know, I was just gonna say, and like that is not to, and that is not to be negative about Death Stranding, a game that I never finished, but nonetheless am uh, am fond of and am incredibly glad exists. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Like the thing that I'm really hoping is that in the next few years we see a move away from honestly just AAA development generally. Like, I think um, the cycle of like AAA games and this, like, you know, in the last generation, some of them were really amazing, but there were very few. And uh, I really would like to see more of a kind of like, uh, honestly, like Xbox 360 era proliferation of like really interesting, like mid tier budget games, in addition to the incredibly strong kind of like, you know, uh, indie sphere that there is currently. Yeah, agreed. And I, I mean, yeah, I'm even looking at my library of, well, physical games anyway, that I have on my shelf. And uh, at least from the from this previous generation, PlayStation 4 and everything. Um, and yeah, with a few exceptions, I mean, most of those games, most of those games are, are rather most of those games are AAA or at least extremely high budget. Um, and with a few exceptions, very most of them did not really strike the kind of chord with me that uh, so many indie experiences I had in the last few years did. Um, and uh, yeah, and I think like and some some were even you know really solid games that I just are or at least critically praised and had big followings. Like we talked about last week of the fact that Sony's Spider Man completely completely bounced off of me so hard um and a lot of experiences like that that like i felt like i should have loved and just didn't um and yeah i think as you mentioned you know the 360 era really brought about a lot of interesting mid-budget uh experiences that this last generation has been sorely lacking in and i mean two that come to mind immediately are like spec ops the line and i guess like uh, uh what is it um enslaved odyssey to the west or whatever it was oh sort of, yeah that was yeah, that I, was a cool game 
yes it was yeah um yeah no and like that's sort of like that's not been a thing that much this generation you have some things that kind of like uh tend toward that i would say so like the games of and i I hate this developer's name but uh they make good stuff uh bloober team uh who are responsible for the like the blair witch game that came out and observer and layers of fear and um they're making something called um, i think the medium or something like that like they have made some interesting kind of first person horror stuff um but naturally that kind of comes out of you know the indie sphere and like the 2010s and amnesia and all that um yeah no i mean there's yeah no like i i want more binary domains in in the world you know like more more yeah more enslaved odyssey to the wests uh and i mean i don't know if like we're really going to see that transition in this next generation but man it sure would be cool if we did like i was looking at the um i know this is getting away from the news story but i was like looking at the uh, the steam uh sale that just happened that was like kind of like the black friday sale we check out all this stuff and it was like going through just sort of like you know, there were games that like I hadn't played that like, nonetheless, I was like, I know what this is and I am not interested in it. And the fact that I went through basically like every, again, every series, every franchise, every kind of like, it wasn't just AAA, but like AAA to, you know, like two and two and a half A, because like double A doesn't really exist as like a, a bracket anymore. Mm-hmm. Um Like going through all of this is just kind of going like, yeah, no, like I know what all of this is and like, I'm not interested in any of it. But and the thing is though, like some, my favorite games came out within like the last like mostly within like the last five years. But they're all like indies, you know. It's your disco, it's your disco Elysiums and your um, uh, your Pathologic Twos stuff like that, which have publishers but smaller publishers. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Um, this seems this seems cool because this seemed. Uh, sorry to get back to the actual news story about Bokeh Game Studio. This is interesting talent that doesn't have that you know is who are important creatives who aren't rock stars who are leaving to do their own thing and i hope that this is something that we kind of see more of and i hope it's i hope this ends up being sustainable for them financially so they can keep making cool things and i hope that it i hope that that kind of becomes a model again in uh in the game industry Agreed. And I think it's also just encouraging to see, uh, and, you know, I think this is probably a given with um, their first foray, whatever it's going to be. But it's encouraging to see that the concept art is so clearly horror centric when you have, when you have people with whose background they're, they're at least their true bread and butter that they're known for is in like some of the best horror and gaming ever. I haven't played the siren games, but like you with gravity rush, I have seen, a lot about them and those games they look to be flawed to some extent but they also seem genuinely genuinely effing terrifying um and so like and so i think i i trust horror in their hands and i hope they branch out i hope they do whatever they want um at least to to some extent um and don't become a horror studio and i kind of doubt they will but it is encouraging to see them at least at the beginning returning to those roots yeah definitely yeah. Um, all right. We have to move on here to uh, another story that also is kind of a huge one that broke today. It touches on a lot of ground that we have covered before on this show, but this is a pretty substantial development. 
Um, and this is actually one I have not done a ton of homework on yet, but I, I've heard I've heard enough about that I think I, I'm comfortable speaking on it. Um, and this is I, I don't know if Variety is the one that broke the story, but uh, uh, I'm reading it from Variety, which is uh, Warner Brothers to debut entire 2021 film slate, including Dune and Matrix Four, as well as Godzilla and King Kong and a bunch of others, um, both on HBO Max and in theaters uh, simultaneously. Um, so boy, if we didn't think that theaters were on the outs already, or at least dramatically changing, um, this sure seems to be another sign of a pretty big sea change as a result of this last year. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in terms of like the conversations that we've had on this show, I think this is sort of where we move from speculation to like real kind of like grounded evidence of like, okay this like like this is a change like this is like the thing that like we you know could see coming but you know nonetheless like is a really kind of like concrete confirmation of oh hey movie theaters are gonna die or like there is a like there is a willingness uh by execs to chart a path in which uh theaters are drastically reduced as a means people like you know use to watch movies yeah, and I think it's interesting because uh, I think um, movie theaters seem to be going in a direction that I'm sort of of two minds on. It's it's tough to say because like at the same time, most of the movies I have genuinely enjoyed seeing in theaters and have been glad that I saw in theaters are movies like WB's lineup, are spectacles, are blockbusters. I want to see Matrix 4, or at least I'm cautiously optimistic about it. Um, I want to see Dune. Uh, I want to see Godzilla versus Kong, even though I hated both the last two Godzilla movies. I did love Kong Skull Island. So I cautiously optimistic there. Um, you know, these are movies that I want to see. And these are movies that I would like to see in the theater. And by the time they come out, assuming we're able to go to theaters again, and assuming we don't have to wear masks through the whole thing, um, because let's face it, masks are important. We need to wear them, do, do the right thing, but also they are annoying. Um, so like assuming we can get there by then, uh, I'll be seeing these in theaters for sure. Um, but on that same token, like there's a lot of movies I saw this year, like Palm Springs with Andy Samberg, um, which is a Hulu, uh, Hulu exclusive, uh, not something I would have necessarily been stoked to have paid money to see in theaters, which is not to say it wasn't a high quality film, but it's not a film that I need to go sit in a crowded room uh, with a you know massive surround sound and spend $15 to go see. It is a film that is much better served in the comfort of your own home on your couch. Um, so if this is a sign that theaters are at least going to prioritize large grand scale films, um, which is not to say they haven't already, but if it's, but even more so than already, you know, it's sad to see change happen, but it's also uh, likely, I mean, if I'm trying to be glass half full about it, um, it's also likely probably a pretty necessary change and one that most people, myself included to some extent, will welcome with open arms. Yeah. I mean, I think the, I mean, I think the thing that's really interesting about this is that like, the way it is kind of like the way this is replaying a certain historical movement in terms of like the history of cinema exhibition, which is basically, you know, like theaters as we understand them now basically became a thing in like the eighties. Right. You know, like the, with the rise of like the multiplex and the rise of the mall 
um, as a uh, as a place that you know Americans go and like movie theaters, uh, you know, like were under threat from television in the '50s. Not just because television came to exist, but because there was you know a movement away from urban spaces that like took people with you know extra income to spend on entertainment. It took them away from urban centers where theaters were and basically stuck them in the suburbs. So there's a kind of you know like. And, and I can't remember if we've talked about, I've, we've probably talked about this on, uh, on the show, um, th- this history, but I think like there's something about the, like the kind of like the larger sort of like historical movement of the theater in and out of like relevance and kind of like uh, cultural power that makes this, I don't, I don't know how it changes my response to this, to be honest, it does. It, it makes me kind of like not neutral on it, but like, okay, like this is, you know, this is another move away from the theater. And I hope that, you know, it's met with a kind of like counter move back in some capacity because frankly, you know, we don't have enough, like, you know, like public space has been completely just, you know, ripped to shreds. Like that concept is like under threat due to COVID-19. And, you know, I'm not saying that like, Hey, we need to all go out and hang out in the park. Don't do that, please. But like, nonetheless, like there is, you know, as we, as we know, there is a seizing upon the uh, the situation by big corporations to kind of you know restructure uh, entertainment exhibition distribution in a way that is favorable to them, and you know and this is that and and this is WB like either seeing the writing on the wall or you know putting that writing on the wall themselves by initiating this process, and uh, yeah that's. Um, I don't know. Like, like the thing is like, we are, I don't, okay. I think this is what I'm trying to say. I try and like tell myself that this is a move away from the theater that will be met by like another kind of move back in like a matter of years or like a decade or multiple decades. And like, this is part of just like a movement of, you know, entertainment history, but also, you know, I know this is a cliche, but I still think it's important. Um, The, um, the extent to which we are being ever more atomized and kind of uh, set in our, uh, I don't know, like, like the, the way in which uh, public space is getting to be, um, like even before COVID, you know, like it was getting to be kind of like less and less of a thing. And now we're seeing this, we're going to see kind of an acceleration of like that kind of like breaking apart the, of the idea of the public after COVID. Um, I don't know. I don't like, it's not that I don't feel, no, 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 it is that. It's that I feel really bad about the future of like entertainment generally and like the future of like entertainment as like a thing that kind of like creates a public and creates like, you know, a, in ways that are at least even, you know, relatively minor, uh, that creates a kind of like public sphere where people can like meet and talk, which the cinema has only ever been a little bit of. And I mean, I know I, it's weird that I'm like being nostalgic for like fleeting conversations with like other like Star Wars fans um, in theaters, uh, which is like sort of the extent of my experience of these spaces as public spaces, but still, I don't know. I'm feeling, I'm sorry to be kind of a downer, but like, yeah, I feel pretty bad about this in like ways I'm really having trouble articulating well i just i i've i mean i've done a lot of thinking on that too and i i mean i guess you know time will tell but i kind of of the opposite mind 
Okay, good. Um, to an extent, I I do think that uh, I, I do think that you see with people uh, still, you know, uh, going to stores with regularity and still, uh, uh, um, you know, seeing family, going to Thanksgiving, just seeing friends, uh, having part very ill-advised parties. <laughs> like you know, uh, you, you see yeah. demand. Restaurants, restaurants are packed um i was at uh i was in downtown i was in downtown culver city on a saturday night a few weeks ago thinking it was going to be a ghost town and it looked like any other night in downtown culver city in a pre-covid world just everyone had cloth on their face can i can i quickly say like even if people like even though people are like wearing masks seeing the amount of people who are like eating outside it's still distressing to me oh, to be honest i i mean i'm of the same mind but my point is that like i think there you are seeing such a rejection especially what nine ten months into this thing of yeah. the stay-at-home life and such a like you are seeing humanity even though it's fractured and splintered and we've seen a lot of just uh anger and discontent and fear and hatred so much in the world you're also seeing humanity prevail in people's need to be social we are ultimately social creatures at the end of the day i mean obviously there's your introverts what have you but for the most part people need that human connection and we're not at least now to a place wherein um um that has been sidelined people still date um you know there's that that is all still happening and so i think while we could see a real restructuring and are seeing some real restructuring of the film and entertainment industries uh in many ways for the worse um i think so i think so long as large you know, there's going to be a demand to see star wars in theaters now granted that demand might diminish a bit but I think there's going to be a demand to see I mean, Star Wars. Especially after Rise of Skywalker. But anyway. okay. <laughs> okay, Star Wars was a bad example. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, the the Marvel's Avengers. Um, like, there's going to be a demand to see that in theaters. People are going to... That was the most old man way to... The thing the kids are into, the, the, the Marvel Avengers. Uh. <laughs> well, listen, we've, we've made it very clear that you and I are... are, are jaded pop culture grandpas on this show it's just it's just on brand at this point but um <laughs> but there the uh I, I do think so long as what concerns me more is the future of independent cinemas like um things like the frida and santa anna yeah mm-hmm. it's an incredible theater and i really really hope they weather the storm um they've been doing a lot of online screenings a couple of which i've attended i just i'm trying to help them out however i can um, you know, places like that are the ones that I get, I, I'm given yeah. pause about the future of. Um, and, and, and like, those are the real, and like, I just want to, to kind of like, uh, augment that point. Um, and my own, those are really, those are like the meaningful public spaces too. Like those are where like, you know, like there is an actual kind of like sense of like, you know, involvement and culture and like where discussion happen. like, you know, like art house cinemas are like where cinema actually gets talked about. And like, you know, same with like, and it's, they're like music venues in that way, you know, like there's a kind of like, there's like a culture that like actually emerges uh, from that and that, and like, I do not want to lose that. Sorry, yes. go on. No, I, I mean, we, uh, we actually got to wrap it up here in a second, but um, I will just say to that point, uh, point to close on is I will just say that I, for my birthday last year, I saw cats in theaters and it was, I'm, I'm not, it's not even hyperbole when I say that that was the single greatest theater going experience I've ever had in my life. <laughs> I am not joking. It was, it was incredible. And it was, 
it was at an AMC too. It wasn't like a, it wasn't like, it was an AMC in Redondo Beach. It wasn't even like a, like slightly hipstery theater in like Echo Park where people are going to make fun of the movie. It was a theater where people were genuinely kind of like, let's see what Cats is all about. <laughs> and within 10 minutes, everybody turned on the movie and everybody was in hysterics. It was a great time. I want to go to the uh to screenings of the cult the inevitable cult hit cats but that cult hit can only survive with indie theaters and with small theaters i want to see cats at the frida so i mean i think i think it's a must and i think if there's if if for no other reason that is why we need to save theaters it's for cats (laughs) no other reason we're gonna take a quick break and we will we will be back momentarily listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is Socially Distanced. I am one of your hosts, Justin Kiever, and with me is my co-host, Paxton Wright. Say hello, Paxton. Hello. How's it going? I hope you're well. I'm doing okay, personally. So I hope the feeling's mutual. Uh, I'm doing okay. Um, it's, been a, it's been a busy week. Um, it's been a busy week and I'm a little grouchy. So I guess I'm not doing amazing, but you know, I'm healthy and all of that. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, that, that, that applies to the listeners just the same. And so uh, I, I, hope, I hope they at least are, are one peg above you on that. And I hope you come around to their level soon enough. Uh, I hope so too. And I'm kind of hoping you'll help me get there in the back half of our show. So the back half of the show, as our repeat listeners know, is called Feast in the Weast, where we talk about the media that we have been feasting on. And uh, in the last uh, couple of weeks, Paxton, you have been feasting on something I know that you're very excited to talk about. Would you like to tell the nice people what that is? Yes. And the mean, and the mean people, too, who are also listening? That's true. Well, the mean people I'm less excited to tell about, but you know what? They, you know, they've tuned in. They've done us a favor by, by listening. And so I'll throw them a bone on this one. Um, I have been uh, feasting ravenously on uh, Hulu's 13 episode reboot of uh, The Animaniacs, um, which is a show, the original show was uh, sort of one of the keystone like shows that raised me growing up. Um, it was it was basically on the outs for the, no, it was on the outs for the time I started watching TV really, because it, it ended when I was two or three years old. Um, but it was in syndication on Nickelodeon for several years. Um, and I, I would catch it every single time it was on. And then uh, when that was sort of on the outs, I, I bought all the DVDs. Um, I, I could not get enough of it. And so, uh, yeah, when they, when word came out a few years ago that they were going to be rebooting Animaniacs uh, with Spielberg producing it as he did the original, um, I was, I was quite excited, Um, but I was also cautiously optimistic uh, because the show's original creator, Tom Ruger, who I believe I'm pronouncing his name right, um, was not asked to be involved. Um, it, Hulu didn't even inquire with him. And same with, I think, the entire show's original writing staff. Um, 
and uh, Hulu uh, Ruger supposedly, uh, allegedly, according to him, even requested of Hulu to at least allow him to uh, look at the work they were doing just to give his seal of approval and Hulu wouldn't even give him that much. So the behind the scenes makings of it were quite cynical and unnerving. Um, and what I will say is end of the day, if that's, if all that's true, um, because Hulu insists the opposite, but of course they're going to insist the opposite. Um, should that all be true? Uh, uh, despite that, um, that, that is unfortunate, but the series does, I think, really take and run with Ruger and the original writer's vision uh, quite nicely and um, modernize it in a, in a way that is, uh, uh, you, it's a, in a way that is, that is very on brand for the show, as well as uh, does a good job of, of spreading itself across demographics. I mean, the show is pretty self-aware in the fact that the majority of the people watching it are going to be people like myself who grew up watching it, but it also, it doesn't lose sight of the fact that like it is still a children's show at the end of the day, it needs to be mindful. Um, and so it, it plays the field pretty well and, and does a good job of satirizing contemporary issues in a way that is genuinely very clever and very funny um, and very sharp, but at the same time, uh, not, you know, not, not uh, uh, going so far over kids' heads that there's no point in it being a children's show, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I figure you have watched the entire run. Uh, I never watched Animaniacs growing up. I had kind of like a, it really hits me that I had sort of an unusual and limited kind of uh, cartoon consumption as a child. Uh, I watched a lot of the original Scooby-Doo, um, which I don't remember well. But I'm going to say, I think uh, my parents' attempt to keep me watching wholesome children's content. I don't know if watching... I don't know that watching uh, things from the 60s is the way to do that. Anyway, um, I mean, some wonderful things happened in the 60s, don't well, get me wrong. But, I mean, Fred um, and Wilma had such a healthy relationship on the Flintstones. I don't know. Ex what exactly, right? <laughs> you know, like it was thanks to Fred that I started smoking. So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no. So, like, but I, I wanted to kind of like first start with just like following up on like my kind of experience with something that you were talking about, which is the fact that, yeah, like it was, you know, it ended in 1998. Like I did watch, I watched the first episode of the new run because that's all I had time to watch because it's been a nightmare of a, of a, of a two weeks. So um, yeah, and, and like they're, they're very, um, you know, they immediately kind of hit you with the history of the show, which is that it ended in 1998. And in 1998, I was four or five, depending on when in 1998 you're talking about. And so it's like this kind of thing where like, I feel like personally, like, I feel like I was supposed to be a nineties kid, but I basically was an aughts kid. Like there's like night, there's stuff that people associate with the nineties and Animaniacs. The reboot is very open about like, you know, it was a show that came out in the nineties. It is a nineties property. Um, nonetheless, like my experience of the nineties as a child was basically not there because anything that I started watching that was like contemporary with me um, is stuff that like was coming out in like 1999 or like the uh, early, like the very early 2000s. 
So Animaniacs wasn't really on my radar. And, um, and then it really kind of, you know, I received it through like clips uh, of the show, uh, you know, as an adult, you know, like people love to pass around the, uh, the, the Prince joke, which I feel like is like one of the most, um, uh, th- th- that joke has lasted. People keep rediscovering that and going, huh. Um, it's arguably the most, how did they get away with this on kids WB joke ever yeah put on television <laughs> yeah like that's pretty that's uh the the, the, the censors were looking away for that one <laughs> um so yeah uh anyway i kind of want to just sort of like foreground my experience with the animaniacs before i start talking about it but before i say anything you're the one who's really been watching this show what do you think about it uh i i would say i've had a i had a really 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 good time with it um it has its highs and lows uh and i would say some of the lows come in from the fact that like one thing that the show has been critiqued for quite a bit is that it does feel like it treads a lot of familiar ground in several episodes um particularly in the warner brothers sequences the pinky and the brain sequences are all uh, for the most part quite fresh and probably the probably by and large the the funnier sequences of the show even though growing up i was more of a fan of the warners than i was pinky in the brain um those sequences just kind of carry more weight on this on this new reboot um but so so yeah there is some stuff where it's like okay they're yeah they're um annoying this historical figure or they're they're breaking the fourth wall that we've seen them do this in 400 episodes however many it was uh back in the 90s like there's not a lot new here there's a really disappointing episode where they um they go to russia because they find out that there is like a a um, sort of bargain bin knockoff animaniacs being produced there and so mm-hmm. and so the episode is all about them going to russia and like trying to like put a stop to this show but the jokes are incredibly one-dimensional about like everyone loves Putin and, and Putin is great and no, don't question him. And also Trump and like, uh, it's cold and everyone's angry there. And it's like the, the jokes just feel so hackneyed and like, frankly, like jokes we've been making about Russia since the cold war. <laughs> like it doesn't, it, it was like, it was a, it was a really solid premise that they didn't stick the landing on. Um, and so you do have episodes like that, but then you also have episodes wherein uh, there, there's a sequence later on wherein the Animaniacs uh, beat up Tucker Carlson, which is like, you know, what's, what's not cool. cool about that? That's pretty rad. They drop an anvil on Tucker Carlson's head and completely sabotage his show. So that's cool. Um, yeah, you know, <laughs> you watched that one. Yeah, it has its moments. There's an episode where Pinky and the Brain meet and hang out with Edward Snowden um they you know they they go they go places um and as always completely on brand for animaniacs um the music in it is all top notch there's a lot of great show tunes in it uh which is a rarity in modern animation because um i was actually looking into this recently so the reason you see so few show tunes on modern animation is uh, uh, because budgets have been scaled way, way back with the advent of digital. Um, animation, animated shows used to have huh. massive budgets because of how taxing and, and labor, uh, labor-intensive hand-drawn animation was. But now that animation has gone completely digital and is significantly cheaper and takes way less time to do, um, shows have way less of a budget. And singing 
and musical numbers require massive budgets. So uh, Animaniacs is sort of keeping up with, with sort of tradition of animation of yesteryear by having all those musical numbers that are really funny, um, really biting, especially in the first episode. It has two, two top-notch musical numbers, one of which is a sort of kind of zany roundup of the past 22 years since the show ended, where it's the Animaniacs are getting themselves caught up to speed on what went down. Um, and I mean, it's, 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 a arguably like the most bleak the show ever gets because it's all about, uh, it's all about like climate change and the collapse of the global economy and the, the advent of the Trump presidency, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's basically a whole, the whole song is about like, we're a nation and a species in decline, (laughs) but like done through the, the silly, the silly antics of the Warner brothers. And then there's another one, which is a complete self-satirization of uh, reboots and, and the culture of creating reboots in Hollywood that at once is both a sort of critique of like the, the sort of death of creativity and risk-taking in Hollywood while also both mocking itself for being a reboot and then mocking itself for mocking itself for being a reboot. Which, okay. So I actually, so yeah, like I said, I watched the first episode. So I, the, these are, these are the the sequences that I saw. And I, when I talked about, when I said I was grouchy, um, yeah, I, uh, I actually found myself really turned off by the, um, the reboot, uh, show tune which you know like as a musical number it was fine like that was like actually when i was like i said i didn't watch the animaniacs growing up when i was looking it up to see like where i was supposed to stream it because i couldn't remember which of the million streaming services it was on um i saw like on wikipedia like musical it was like comedy musical and uh, like <laughs> ah, no and, and, then, and then and then the music was fine and it was like okay yeah like this is not turning me off um but yeah no there was something you know, for a show that really leans into the fact that it is a product of the 90s, the fact that it's like it's self-critique uh, seems to also basically be taken straight from the 90s was something that like I like well, there was like kind of like a very Sonic the Hedgehog kind of attitude to its um to this kind of like self-critique of reboots and also like i'm and this is like whatever man it's a kid's show but like a certain miss like a certain like misdiagnosis of like why reboots exist um which is not because it's not due to a lack of you know creativity it's the like you know it's the thing that like the two laborers like like the two like stage guys or whatever say as they're like walking by the warner brothers which is you know like anyway it's a it's a cost-effective way to introduce people to an ip and like that and like because like they're right and then the sort of like the moment where the um the warners kind of like they where they like snidely kind of like pretend to be serious and kind of give like the grand like thesis which is like you know like this you know speaks to a fundamental lack of creativity it's like no 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 it's the thing the other people said and like that is the problem that is the entirety of the problem and um i don't know i I was just kind of like i I was sort of struck by i don't know man like i um it seemed so uh, like pastiche in a very kind of like normative way that I was just like, uh, I, 
this is doing nothing for me. And it's kind of like, you know, it's telling me something that I already know, but like, it's like laughing, like the, the, the joke, it felt like the joke was on me and not on reboots. Does that make sense? Like it, it does. Ariel, go ahead. Oh no. And just to, sorry, just to make that thought a little more clear. Like the fact that it's not that reboots are bad. It's not that like reboots ought to not be made anymore, but here we are. It's like, no, no, no. Reboots. You know, yeah. Like reboots are all the things you think they are and you can't do a single thing about it. You person watching the show. Like that was sort of like the way, and maybe I'm just, and again, I'm just grouchy this week. So I might be completely wrong and I would like to be wrong, but that's just sort of like where I was at with that musical number. No, I agree. And I think, um, and I think you're not, I don't think that's necessarily a result of grouchiness because results uh, uh, or um, reception to this show has been very across the board. I've seen stellar reviews. I've seen lukewarm reviews. and I've seen terrible reviews. Like people are very divided on their perception of this show. And I do think to the show's credit, the, when they say that reboots are a result of a lack of creativity in Hollywood. It's not the result. It's, I mean, I think they, they emphasize that it's, it's, um, it's a lack of creativity and willingness to take risks from executives. Um, It's less about the fact that there aren't ideas being, being presented and produced. It's the fact that, uh, that exactly. I mean, I think to that same point that it is a cost-effective way to introduce people to an IP it's a it's a matter to and and uh, and also rake in cash from the people who are already familiar with the IP. Um, so I, I think I think to an extent you're not giving the show enough credit uh, in terms of its its thesis. But I would also argue that yeah, I think the um, the number is slightly ham fisted and slightly surface level the the musical number. But I also think it kind of has to be because it is talking about a sort of. Uh, a a heady i guess a heady concept with no clear definitive 100% um answer that is that is easily palatable for children At the end of the day this is a show that is for the people who grew up watching it like myself but again like i said it can't lose sight of the fact that its origins are in being a children's show and it still needs to appeal to children just the same. So I think it is a it is a good way to discuss the concept of reboots and the sort of cynical background of reboots uh, in a way that children can grasp and and um, and just the same I think adults can appreciate. Yeah. Um, to uh, to say something a little more positive and like say just to highlight. Uh, the fact that the show hates Seth Meyers was something I thought was honestly very funny. Um, like just like the fact that they make Seth Meyers just like absolutely grotesque. Um, have, <laughs> what does he say where he's like, um, the reason this face is even allowed on television is because nobody's watching. <laughs> yeah. And like, there, there's like this, like, I don't know. Like I appreciate it. I, appreciated the fact that they were like willing to take a shot at like really hackneyed kind of like, look, I, you know, I, I am not a fan of President Donald Trump, as is you know as is clear. But also a lot of the comedy that like that emer- like the late night comedy that emerged that just kind of like was able to sort of like rely on Trump as a reliable punchline. Seth Meyers in particular uh, was not good. You know like it's bad late like, it's bad comedy. And the fact that they're willing to kind of go, hey, th- this is not. Th- look at this this is terrible right like i was glad that they were willing to do that it's nice to see 
you know what if we're gonna do like very contemporary parody stuff parodying like the the state of late night not a bad way to go but yeah I mean, there's a reason that conan is getting out like yeah, exactly I mean, yeah i think it's it's uh it's a it's a not a hundred percent dying landscape but it is evolving in a way that is uh incredibly underwhelming and uh uh increasingly uh unnecessary um but but yeah it's uh i I will say to their credit i i did during the election in 2016 um i did think seth meyers i don't know if they had a change in writing staff or or what but i thought the show or maybe it's just that the, the joke got tired, which it's probably a bit of A and a bit of B. But during the election in 16, I actually thought the show was quite funny. And then it became beating a dead horse for four years. And and then I had to tune out uh, very quickly after that. But I, I will say to their credit in the beginning, it was I thought it was somewhat funny. Um, but yeah, it, it, the fact that the show goes after Seth Meyers and goes after everybody. I mean, it is a, um, it, it's a, uh, uh, the, the show does, um it does goof on a lot of public figures in a way that like is somewhat shocking to see from a from a children's show uh they although i will they do have a bit of the pot calling the kettle black and goofing on seth myers for his trump joke because they're jump trump jokes because there is one a few there's an episode uh a little ways in which is uh wherein there's a cameo by a character that is an obvious stand-in for trump that are the most like 2015 primary like level of comedy of trump it's it's he's orange he talks himself up he has weird hand gestures and it's like we're really doing this in 2020 um yeah there's um there's a bit in the uh in like in the opening music number where they talk about like hey the writers are writing this in 2018 so we actually don't know what this is like the world's gonna look like when this airs there's something like both kind of brilliant but also you get like you see how self-defeating the show sort of like is just due to its production where you go like well yeah like you're doing comedy that's satirizing contemporary things but you're always going to be kind of behind the curve right and you know what do you do about that um i I think there i've well i think that's one of the weirdly they had a uh, an almost prophetic moment with that number because they like the the latter half of the number is them doing like speculative like wild guesses on what the next two years are going to look like, and they yeah. hit on a couple points where it's like oh yeah there's worsening climate disasters there's uh, the fact that we're all uh, we there's there's a part where they're like we have to live in our homes underground. Uh, and wear like wear gas masks because the air is toxic and it's like oh good oh, okay yeah yeah well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that that um yeah that sequence is a little more accurate than they probably figured <laughs> um but yeah i mean i guess uh but yeah tell me a little more like beyond just kind of like how it starts though uh because I, I don't want to like you know just keep us there i mean yeah uh what you know like you seem generally pretty positive uh about it um I don't know. What do you see for it going forward? Do you see it like continuing beyond the season? Like, has it been renewed? Like what's the, what's the word? It has been renewed for a second season. So there will be more of it. And uh, I mean, I, I welcome it. I think there is a lot of room for improvement on the season. There is also an episode uh, where with a pinky in the brain segment, it's probably the weakest pinky in the brain segment of the season um wherein it's like a sad it's like a satire of mall culture that was like this should have been written in the 90s this is a 
this is a dead sequence um it's it's weird so like it has its it has its moments where it is extremely out of touch um but it also uh yeah it it, it uh uh i think one one way in which is it is incredibly refreshing is probably for people like myself who are like and again this is this comes from a bit of my sort of jaded grandpa sensibilities but like is the fact that like the state of modern animation with a few exceptions i find to be largely underwhelming and it's so much due to the digital realm that we're in it's why like i think the the cal art style as it's known has held sway for the last 10 years shows like adventure time steven universe gravity falls rick and morty uh my little pony etc etc all these shows which like are pretty much all well revered and uh, well written shows and i personally i love gravity falls like i i adore that show yeah it's good yeah it's really good but that and but the problem is with the character design the, uh, the character design is so simplistic on those shows so that it is very easily uh animatable and it doesn't require a a lot of really taxing labor which is good for the actual people doing the animation um because uh, hand-drawn animation was notoriously torturous there's a reason that like so many people who worked on disney movies like went completely insane in in their later years um it was a it was a it was a nightmarish way to work it, with incredibly strict deadlines and often very volatile and unpleasant people to work with so it makes complete sense that we have uh, streamlined the process through digital but with that has come a sort of uh, aesthetic sterilization of it which is why like i can't watch adventure time i think it's funny i think it's well written i i hate the look of that show uh so strongly because the character designs are dots for eyes and a little bean mouth on everybody i'm like there's and you know this is this is not to besmirch the show there is obviously this is a very revered animated show it's not to my taste um but but yeah I, i think with that state of modern animation i also think that the um some of the strongest digitally animated shows right now are some of the most uh stiff things like archer things like uh uh american ad those are those show as south park those shows lend themselves to digital animation because they're kind of they're uh grounded in how they in how they they uh move um and animaniacs i think one thing i i really love about it guess we're getting back to my point before we wrap up here is the fact that animaniacs though you can see the um you can see the digitization on it you can see that it is different and in some ways slightly underwhelming uh in how it looks just because of the the sort of new limitations that they have it is probably the most quote-unquote animated uh thing i've seen on television in the last at least 10 years um it's incredibly expressive with very complex character designs um and very very complex animations there's one i love in the reboot number wherein uh it's it's a it's like a two second moment but yakko uh wacko opens up his mouth and uh has like a tv in his mouth like sitting on his tongue and yakko punches him in the gut and uh, Yakko's tongue, Wacko's tongue stays stays in place with the TV propelled on it as Wacko himself is pushed backwards before the tongue eventually sort of recoils into his mouth like a like a, a 
tape measure and the TV mm. sort of floats in place for a second before falling. It's complicated to explain, but like the dimensions of that are very complex um, and very much not like something you would see in a lot of modern animation, um, at least with uh, character designs that are that complex. Yeah. Uh, and so it really does sort of feel like it's holding true to that animation of yesteryear despite its new limitations and i look forward to seeing more of that and i hope it holds some influence on other animation going forward uh, granted it's also probably such an incredibly expensive show <laughs> that like they actually are afforded the opportunities to animate like that but even so um i hope networks and distributors that have the budget for it do afford that to their shows so that they can do more things like that. I am cautiously optimistic about the future of animation uh, as a result of this show kind of kicking off a new trend. Yeah. That's a, I think that's a good place to, I think it's a good place to leave it too. Um, you know, some nice cautious optimism. I'm in agreement. This, this whole, the theme of this episode has been cautious optimism. I feel like. <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess that that'll do it for us this week. Um, I, I, I have nothing more to add than the usual. Stay safe, stay healthy. I assume the same for you, Justin. Uh, yeah, stay safe, stay healthy. All right. Take care, everybody.